Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the words and nerds podcast on this podcast we chat about books the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world i'm your host danny v today i'm really excited to speak to alexandra joel whose first novel the best-selling the paris model was published around the world her memoir rosetta a scandalous true story was optioned for the screen but today we talk about her new book the royal correspondent welcome back alexandra i was looking through the podcasts before and i know that you were on episode 178 before with the paris model woohoo it's great to be here thanks danny and I was very excited to speak to you because I loved the Paris model. So I was really looking forward to what you came up with next. So can you give us an elevator pitch for your new book? Okay. So my new book is about a young girl called Blaze Hill. She, re, she grows up in a then very seedy inner city suburb called Enmore. <laughs> She's desperate to become a journalist against a whole lot of opposition and misogynist men. She makes it. She's sent to London in 1960 to cover the wedding of the royal family's wild child, Princess Margaret. And when she's there, she becomes drawn into an elite world of drama and intrigue. So oh. think royal scandals, espionage, the Profumo affair, and two very complicated romantic entanglements. Oh, it has everything, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. I, I could have just kept listening to you tell the story. <laughs> 30 minutes of you just retelling the story, please. Oh, I could do that. <laughs> what sparked you to write this particular story? I guess it was a few things. Um, one is that my dad grew up on the very same street in Enmore where I have 
misplaced my character. And he was also poor. And his dad said to him, there are only four ways out of this dump. And they were the four Ps. Priest, police, pro boxer, or press. <laughs> wow. So for a whole lot of reasons, the first three were ruled out. He went for press and he left Clevo Boys High at the tender age of 14 to join the Daily Telegraph. Um, He ended up with an illustrious career. He became a member of parliament. He organised probably most of the grand state occasions for 40 years from the coronation of George VI to the opening of the Opera House and a whole lot of royal tours. But I found myself wondering what if he'd been born a girl? Mm. What obstacles would that girl have faced and who might she have become? And that was the starting point for the Royal Correspondent. I love that. I love how you got there with a very true story and then you flipped it around because you wanted to look at feminism and misogyny and the challenges that women face in that particular time. And and what were some of the challenges? I mean, we know most of them, but were there some that really surprised you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was amazed to find that up until the end of World War II, the basic wage for women by law was exactly 50% of the male wage, which is astonishing. After the war, as this great concession to women because they'd worked so hard in male jobs during the war, it was put up to 75%, which was seen as this great breakthrough. But the thing that was fascinating about journalism and, of course, one of the aspects that attracted my character in the late 50s was that journalism was the only industry that did not discriminate against women. Wow. It was the only one in which it was mandated by law women had to be paid the same. They found plenty of other ways, of course, to exclude (laughs) women. I mean, it's like so many stories were picked up, I don't know, in a pub, great place for journo gossip. Were women allowed in bars in pubs? Amazingly, no, they were not. So um, my heroine, like a whole lot of women at that time, had to find their way around all these barriers to nab the story they were after. Wow, that is so interesting. And I love that every time you explore a context, you think you know a little bit about feminism, you know a little bit about this, you learn so much more. Now, This book is also inspired by true events. I wanted to know where does the fact and where does the fiction end and begin or does it just completely blur in the end? Ha ha. (laughs) Well, again, I was sort of inspired by my dad because he'd had so much to do with the royals, organising tours and all these grand openings. So I actually got a bit of my own mini version of The Crown as I was growing up. I wanted to look behind the curtain. I have to say, as far as historical fiction is concerned, I take the history part really seriously. So I don't fudge any of the history, although weirdly famous historical characters do have a way of wandering into my imagined characters' lives (laughs) and playing a really significant role. But 
you know, just to give an example, there is one really shocking royal scandal that Blaze, my reporter heroine, uncovers, and it really happened, and it was kept buried for half a century. Wow. I don't think you could do it these days. I mean, not with social media, not with the way the press operates, but in those days when the class system was still intact, it could be suppressed. But like all of these things, my heroine Blaze, who has a secret of her own in the past, has to juggle what she exposes and what she doesn't because what she exposes might expose herself to an amazing risk, which is really hard for a journo who's dead keen. Like she's got these incredible stories, but what will happen if she breaks them? What will be the cost and who is going to wreak vengeance on her? Wow, you make it sound so exciting and it is so exciting. I loved reading and I loved all those, you know, different threads in there. And what you say is really interesting because I imagine back then when your father worked in media and when Blaze worked in media, the newspaper was a huge part of how people consumed their media and their news. Nowadays, though, I read the other day that social media actually makes up about 40% of the way we consume our media. So you would not be able to keep any secret, would you, unless you just stayed in your house with that secret because everyone has a phone in their pocket. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, everyone has a phone in their pocket, but also I just think we have a different attitude these days to what used to be called our elders and betters. So there was a kind of a nice clubby collusion going on between newspaper publishers and editors and, you know, royals and the aristocracy. So a whole lot of secret scandals were just buried. And, you know, there's one character in the book that is inspired by the keeper of the royal pictures, who was a real person called Sir Anthony Blunt, and he was out, he was discovered to be one of the infamous Cambridge spies who was trading secrets to the Soviet Union. Wow. But he wasn't exposed. I mean, he was allowed to keep on being the keeper of the Queen's pictures until 1979. Like, how was all of this kept under wraps? Well, it was kind of like this conspiracy of people who'd been to Cambridge or Oxford, people who'd been to the right schools, people who had titles and the right connections. And here is Blaze, my heroine, who's from the other end of the social extreme. I mean, she's a real kick-ass working-class girl from Inmore trying to grapple with this world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the best type of person, I reckon, to be able to deal with that world. Yeah, and, a, and an Aussie that yeah. actually, you know what Australians are like, especially Australian girls. It's like, well, I'm just going to wade into this one. <laughs> and I like I like that reputation. <laughs> now, you do include real-life events in the book, such as the Kennedy Dinner at Buckingham Palace and the building of the Berlin Wall. And, you know, you like to include those, those real things that happen in history. Do you think that that gives the book a little bit of weight or do you just like including those things because you make them work with the story? Um, for me, 
including those historical events, creates a much richer experience for the reader. It's a much more layered experience. So you feel that you are really entering that period. You, you could be Blazer's friend. You could be there when the Berlin Wall is going up or the Kennedy dinner is taking place, really happened. It's a challenge to write, though, Danny, because it's like you've got two arcs because one are the real historical events taking place and the other is your character's narrative arcs. And sometimes they go and like just, you know, collide. <laughs> um, and that's the trick is to weave the two together so that it is completely plausible and, as you said, the reader is constantly thinking you suspend disbelief and you are back there in that period living this larger-than-life experience. Mm, that's so true. And as a reader you are, you're just so immersed in the context and in the period in which it was written. And something that I love about your books is how fashion and art reflect the social and political climate. Tell us about fashion and art in the 60s and how it reflects the social ideas and political values, etc. cetera, that, that in that context. One of the reasons I love including fashion and art is because it is so revealing of the time, particularly for women, because women's clothing is so important and it reveals their status in society, it reveals attitudes to sexuality, it reveals attitude to age. So, you know, in the book you see this arc because, first of all, you see this working-class kid who's basically dressed from St Vincent de Paul. Then you see her being styled up by the women's editor in the late 50s in what was then the height of fashion, which is, of course, Christian Dior, incredibly sophisticated. It's an idealisation of the mature women who were in vogue after World War II. Then she hits London. It's the dawn of the swinging 60s. She's in the King's Road and, oh, my God, here's Mary Quant and everything she's learnt about how to be this sophisticated woman is just blown away because it's all about youth and the miniskirt. And it really shows in dress that complete revolution that happened when women went from being the revered wife and mother to the young girl who's out there on her own terms, living her own life, earning her own um, money and also sexually free because, you know, the peel is on the horizon. It's a revolution and the miniskirt symbolised. In the book, you see Cecil Beaton, who was the royal family's favourite photographer, and, you know, he took these gorgeous pictures and you can see this amazing shot of Princess Margaret on her 21st birthday in this beautiful Dior gown. It's very classic. And suddenly we've got people like David Bailey and the supermodel of the era, the shrimp, Gene Shrimpton, and, you know, he's got like a shaggy beard and he hops on a motorcycle or, in fact, 
Princess Margaret's fiance, and of course, this so shocked society because she was the first daughter of a British king to marry a commoner mm. in over four centuries. And we're not talking about just any commoner, we are talking about a very racy photographer. He was a fantastic photographer, but it was a revolution because he liked girls swinging down the street, you know, falling out of boats, knocking over glasses. There was none of this posing in front of mirrors and bouquets of roses. (laughs) It was action to the max. (laughs) And how could you resist that? (laughs) Um, It's impossible to resist. And the thing is, these occurrences, these developments echo the development in the character because you can see the interchange between the two and with Blaze in the royal correspondent see her taking all of this in you can see the excitement building you can see how it challenges everything she has thought was the right thing to do and what she does with this information which is pretty radical Absolutely. Now, on a bit of a serious note, you explore emotional abuse or, as we call it, gaslighting. Why was this important for you to explore in the book? It's been around forever, and yet it seems that it's only really been widely discovered and gone into general conversation of late, even though it was actually used as a psychological term from the early 60s. And I believe it's still true that so many women suffer from predatory men, sometimes other women, but usually predatory men, who are gaslighting them. Um, So they deny the woman's reality. It usually starts off with them doing what I call love bombing them. That woman is just the most fabulous girl in the world. They take them out to fantastic places. They give them presents so that you're completely swept off your feet. But then little by little, they start maybe just gently criticising the way you dress, bringing clothes home and saying, look, here's a present for you. Only it's not something you'd wear. It's something they want you to wear. And then maybe the oh, I'm not too keen on those friends of yours. Let's not spend time with them. And gradually by this insidious process, they begin to separate you from what has been your reality. And then the next step is when they begin to make you question your own reality. So you might think you're meeting someone there and he doesn't turn up and he says, no, you're imagining it. Or you might think you've seen him with someone and he goes, no, you're, you know, you're a psycho. Until eventually you are so confused and you're so isolated, you no longer trust your own reality. And frankly, haven't we just seen this recently happening en masse with a certain American president who even when a pandemic was raging was saying, no, no, it's not raging. That's not happening. It, you know, it's a little cold and, you know, it'll all be over in five minutes. That is classic gaslighting on a mass scale. But on a micro scale, I was amazed at the number of women who said to me, 
I've encountered that. I almost lost myself, almost lost my friends. Um, often it needs a really strong intervention from an outsider who can say, hey, do you realise what's going on? Yeah, it, it is. And, it's, and I'm glad, I know it's been around for a long time, as you said, but it's good that we've started the conversation about it because I often speak to women when we start talking about this and I speak to women who are very strong, independent women who have encountered this in relationships. They're often strong, independent women who've just found themselves in this situation, myself included, you know, so it's, it's, it's really important that we talk about it. And I'm not sure how you felt, but there's often a lot of shame connected with it because you think, how could I have got suckered into this? And it's like you're mortified to actually even share it with your friends because it's like they just won't believe I've been so stupid. Mm -hmm. And yet it is such an effective process that before you know, you're just suckered into it. Mm. Uh, I wanted people to know that that was happening from, you know, it's not something recent. That's been happening to women for decades and it deserves to be talked about. Absolutely. It was interesting you say that because I watched a TED talk recently and this was a very educated woman. She had a PhD. She was independent, earning her own money, very intelligent. And she said she was in this relationship exactly like that, but with domestic violence as well. And she said, I never saw myself as a victim of domestic violence. I saw myself with a damaged man who I needed to help because I loved him. And I thought, Twisting it around like that, it just makes a lot of sense because it's very easy to say, oh, why doesn't she just leave him? But if you've been in that situation, you're not thinking that you are the victim. You're thinking that, oh, you know, I love this person, etc. And like you said, it's a very slow psychological process that you don't sit there and think, oh, I'm a victim necessarily. Well, what happens is that um, this is putting on my psychotherapist hat. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> the perpetrator makes the victim feel responsible mm -hmm. for his unhappiness. Yeah. And he will say, but I love you so much and I've done so much for you. How could you treat, don't you realise everything I do is in your interests and I'm so hurt and you are victimising me. Every woman and indeed every individual has a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I mean, for Blaze in the Royal Correspondent, yes, she's really bright, she's tough, she's a working class girl who's made it, but she can't actually quite get past this because the guy who's gaslighting her is from the top of the tree. You know, he's from an aristocratic family. And by God, these men, they are, it's like magnetic. They have a way of zeroing in on this vulnerability and using it totally to their own advantage. Mm. It's like an exocet missile. Mm. And I just love how we've just gotten so deep in this conversation, Alexandra, as always. We can't help well, ourselves. The great thing is, <laughs> you know, basically Blaze is unsinkable. Good. You know, she 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 is going to battle her way through this. The thing with my books is um, usually before I've started writing, I've worked out the plot 
just to the point where my protagonist, inevitably a woman, is in a world of trouble. Like she is got fires breaking out all over the place. And I have absolutely no idea how to extricate her. <laughs> but it's not till I start writing, like it's it's the most terrifying way to write, but it's not till I'm actually writing it till I get that point that I see a way she can overcome what's in front of her. So it's kind of like I think for the reader maybe when they read it, they're going, oh, my God, how is she going to get out of this? Oh, my God, this is terrible. But I'm feeling the same way. <laughs> I love that. And maybe that comes through really because as you're writing it, it's that sort of immediacy and maybe that comes through as you're reading it. I feel like it does as a reader. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. That's great. Now, Alexandra, final question for you. Why do you write or why do you keep writing? Okay, um, in a way, it's kind of like a selfish thing. Um, okay, I'll just say it. <laughs> I write books that I am dying to read. I love that. I will come across a character and then I'll think of a situation and then I'll think of an era and suddenly it's like, oh, my God, I'm dying to read this book, except the problem is I've got to write the damn thing first so <laughs> when I write it's with a kind of combination of joy and terror but it's so compelling it's, it's like um, I have a movie unspooling in my head <laughs> it's just that I've got to get the words down in order to know what on earth is going to happen next. <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. And I'm glad you are writing stories that you want to read because I want to read them too. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me again at Speed. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you because we stick to the book and then we just go on these amazing tangents. And I love that. That's my favourite thing <laughs> about speaking to writers that we just, we talk about the writing, but we talk about the world because that's where our ideas derive. So thank you so much for all of that conversation. It's great. Thanks, Danny. It's been a treat. <laughs>